State your name for the record. Jen Ursa. Forgery of imperial documents, possession of stolen property, aggravated assault, resisting arrest. On your own from the age of 15, reckless, aggressive, and undisciplined. This is a rebellion, isn't it? G'day everyone and welcome to the Doctor Who Show presents Star Wars Rogue One. I'm joined today by my co-host David. How are you, David? I'm good, thanks, Rob. How are you? Not too bad at all. We've both seen Rogue One in the past few days and uh, we were so keen about it, I think we wanted to talk about it on a, on a special edition of the podcast. Absolutely. Always happy to talk about these things. Now, do you want to give our, our marks out of 10 first before we, um, before we kick on and, and go into the, the long form part of the review? Well, actually, Rob, I've been thinking about it, and I'm really reluctant to try and give it a mark out of 10. Oh, tell me more. Well, when you give a mark out of 10, you're trying to put it on a scale and compare it to other things. Now, I'm not sure how I'm meant to judge this film in contrast to others. I mean, it's definitely better than previous standalone films, but I don't think we can fairly compare it to Caravan of Courage. <laughs> no. I think it's definitely... I enjoyed it a lot more than the prequels, but it's trying to do a different thing. Uh, likewise, you start to then try and say, well, where does it compare to the Holy Trilogy or to The Force Awakens? But that brings me to the point that this is trying to do what a, this, this is trying to be a phenomenally different movie to those movies because it's got two vastly different things it's trying to do. Yeah. So, so I don't know if it's fair to really try and compare it. I I totally get where you're coming from. Um... I, I will give it a mark, pr primarily because anyone who follows me on Facebook will know I've already given it a mark. I came home from the cinema. <laughs> okay. It was 2.30 in the morning. I made this bleary video like, oh, hello, it's 2.30 in the morning. And uh, on that video, I gave it an 8 out of 10. Yeah, okay. That sounds reasonable. I, I know exactly what you mean about not being able to compare it to the other films because they are, I guess, what Lucasfilm would call the saga films, and this is the first of the anthology films, which is weird because the film is a sort of a standalone thing, and I think of an anthology as being like multiple things. I guess they're going to call all the films that aren't the saga an, an anthology, so this and the Han Solo film and whatever comes after that will all form an anthology in the future. Um, so if you hear us talk about the anthology films, uh, listeners, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, and, and I think it's important to sort of say from the outset, this film is trying to do a very different thing and trying to be a very different film to the others. Now, it has one massive advantage and one perhaps partial con in that. The advantage is that because it's not trying to be part of a trilogy, it has the ability to stand alone, have a solid beginning, middle and end, and just tell a story that links in with the universe, but is its own story in a way that, for example, The Force Awakens couldn't, because The Force Awakens was always going to be part one of a trilogy. Mm. So I think it's it's hard to compare there. And and when some people have said, oh, this is so much better than The Force Awakens, I, I go back to where I was 12 months ago and say, you can't judge The Force Awakens until you've seen episodes eight and nine, because you don't know if it's done its job. Exactly. Exactly right. On the other hand, because it's not a saga it doesn't have to have that burden of trying to bring a new audience in and be the new trilogy for a new audience this can just 
sit down hardcore fans and pleasure them for two hours and ten minutes. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I've made a note here. This is a film very much for the fans, um, which which can be a good and a bad thing in itself. There's already several articles out there that I've spotted saying, you know, have you have you caught all the Easter eggs? Here's the ones we've caught. And, you know, it'll, it'll mention tons and tons of stuff, which on the whole I had caught, I guess, because I, I am and have been in the past a massive Star Wars fan. But for a, a new fan, and I got asked this at work, actually, by someone who is a Star Wars fan, but asked me the question, oh, could a non-fan enjoy it? They, they might have been thinking of taking a partner or, or someone who doesn't like Star Wars or knows Star Wars. And I, I had to answer honestly, and I said, I, I think they could enjoy it, but I think a fan takes away so much more because there is so much fan service in this film, but in a good way. Yeah, and, and I think we'll get to that point in a moment, but certainly uh, I can echo that experience. Now, I didn't do the hardcore thing. You didn't go at the midnight screening, but I went at 9.30 the next day, which was the big VMAX cinema screening at my local cinema. Mm-hmm. And I've got to tell you, the demographic in there was exactly the demographic you would expect if you collected a bunch of Star Wars fans. It was predominantly male, though not exclusively male. It was not even 18 to 40. It was almost sort of 25 to 40. Um, I'm sure there were some early people in their early 20s and teens there, but I, I reckon as someone in their mid-30s, I was pretty much right bang in the middle of the demographic that saw that, which was very different to the cinemas where I saw Force Awakens. Interesting. Okay. I saw mine in a gold-class theatrette, um, which seats about 40, and it's exactly the same theatrette and exactly the same seat that I sat in when I saw The Force Awakens. <laughs> and, and the crowd was pretty much as you described. Like, I'm, I'm 41. I was probably maybe a little on the older side, but probably roughly in the middle. There were some younger folks, some older folks. Um mostly male i'd say about three quarters male in there yep there were some very passionate female fans i've got to say um no one was cosplaying though i don't think you know at the midnight sessions they they were really going in for that uh i think there were some 501st members in the foyer interesting you say that because um uh, my friend richard did a midnight screening at the cinema that i went to and he said that he was actually quite surprised by the lack of people in costumes and dress-ups i said there was some there was some quite not quite nice lightsabers but that was about all interesting yeah we as i say we had some i think 501st members in the foyer i didn't stop and talk to them i'm i'm ex 501st myself um uh, and they looked really good i didn't stop for photos or anything i had a million photos of myself and darth vader and stormtroopers from my time <laughs> in that group uh yeah. but they were the only people and they were there obviously the, the cinema got them in to, to do a, a bit of a um you know walk around and pose for photos yeah but i didn't see even in the p- folks going into the regular part of the cinema where they had one or two of the biggest cinemas open i didn't see any cosplay either there no yeah so that's interesting so i think we can safely say this was one aimed at the fans and i think therefore a large part of the success of this film was going to be how it balanced that fan service and overall i thought it did a very good job i thought for the most part it wasn't too over the top it wasn't too involved it wasn't too forced pardon the pun, but but it, it had a really nice level. I, I thought it struck the balance almost surprisingly well. Yeah, and, you know, I think right from the start, it defiantly stands up and says, I'm not going to be like the saga. We get the a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, but then no crawl, no fanfare, straight yep. into it. 
and we've got the uh, the planets being named down on the the edge of the screen. We never saw that in Star Wars. We never saw Tatooine appear, you know, when we went to Tatooine or Yavin Four. Um, yeah, it does help in this film because we do go to a lot of different planets. <laughs> in fact, we do, which I, I really loved because this really felt as though suddenly we were in a vast galaxy with more planets than just bloody Tatooine or <laughs> Coruscant. So I, I love that galactic feel of it. I thought that really did make use of it. Uh, I, I could be really picky and say the galaxy seemed very small because everyone got between these planets remarkably quickly. Mm. But maybe they were all in sort of in the same galactic neighbourhood, I don't know. But I, I did love that galactic feel to the thing. That, As I say, how many times can you go back to Tatooine when you've got a whole galaxy to explore. Yeah, you're on the same wavelength as my wife there, because afterwards when we were driving home in the car, I did make the comment like, oh, God, we're on this planet, then we have to meet this character who's on this planet, then we meet this character who's on that planet, and then the characters get together and they go to this planet, then they go to that planet. And she she actually said, yes, but, Rob, it's a big galaxy, and it, that actually showed it well. So, ooh, point yeah. taken from both of you. <laughs> Good. So... Where, sh- where should we go now? Should we talk about the fan service? Should we talk about those links or talk about the plot more generally? Well, something I want to mention just briefly, because it's kind of a boring topic now if fans have seen a lot of articles on this, is the reshoots and the script doctoring that were allegedly done on this film beforehand. You know, we knew they were shooting the film and we knew it was all happening and word was it was going great, but then all of a sudden we heard, oh, they're doing reshoots and they've screened it to people and there are reshoots happening and the script's being doctored and they got some fella in who ended up making some millions of dollars rewriting bits of it. And I thought, oh, holy hell, is, has the director made it too dark, perhaps? And Disney's like, oh, we want it darkish, but maybe not that dark, or, or what's going on? And, you know, in more recent times in the in the press um, interviews leading up to the release of the film, the, the directors come out and said, yeah, yeah, we did all that, but we were planning to do that from the start. Don't you worry about it. I don't know how much of that is spin. I don't know how much is that, that is covering up something. But... The film as it is, is a, is a good film. It has its faults. All films have faults. I just wonder what it might have been like before the script doctoring, before the reshoots, whether it was a darker film or maybe it just wasn't as good. Maybe it didn't knit together well. Don't know. Yeah, so I've, I've heard um, Mark Bernardin speak about this, who's the film writer for the LA Times and does a podcast with Kevin Smith. And he has said that all the inside word he has is this wasn't a case of the film was done, it was tested, it flopped in the tests, and they did hasty rewrites. It was the, the, the normal, expensive, you know, high-end budget film process of doing the first cut, seeing what worked and what didn't quite work, and, 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 and tweaking, and it was all within budget, it was all factored in, and that that's what happens with a $200 million film. So I, 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 I'm given the tone of the movie was consistent throughout, it wasn't like a Fantastic Four where suddenly you're watching a whole different film two-thirds in. <laughs> I'm willing I'm willing to accept that that probably is the case. Yeah, and, and I think it's good. I think it's good that it's out now. People can go and see it and see that it's a great film and all these fears that, you know, that the tweaking might have watered it down or the tweaking was there because it was a bad film perhaps and it's been there to save it. Probably quite unfounded because it, it stands as a, as a really top film to watch. Yeah, it really is a really good film. And at the end of the day... I was absolutely gripped by it. And given that we know where everything in this universe has to end up by the last frame of the film, to be gripped and intrigued and uh, caring about it all is a really important thing and a really effective thing. And I, 
I did care about the fate of the characters. I, I felt I knew these characters compared to, let, let's face it, characters in the prequels who were just ciphers. I really bought into this film. That's interesting, because some of the characters I bought into and some of them I didn't. Um, and we'll probably get to the characters later on. This also gives me pause for thought and to mention, folks, this will be spoilerific. <laughs> I'm, I'm about to say something spoilerific right now. If, uh, if you haven't seen the film and you're planning on it, please, please stop listening and come back, come back later. Because what I want to say is, yes, we, we kind of had a sense where it's going, i.e. they get the Death Star plans. That's been a bit of a joke on Facebook for the last week or two. You know, people saying, don't spoil the movie for me, don't spoil the movie for me. And I've jumped onto their threads and said, ah, spoiler, they get the Death Star plans. <laughs> because we know <laughs> that happens, you know. And, yeah. and one thing, we assume, or at least I heavily assumed, was these characters probably won't make it out alive. We don't see them in the future films. It's the perfect chance to have a big epic, let's kill them all moment. And will they do it? Well, they probably will, but I'm not sure. I've seen the film. They killed everybody, literally everybody <laughs> on the planet at the very end. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't give it as much thought as you beforehand, but I was probably about 20, 30 minutes into the film, and it suddenly occurred to me that, hang on, if these people aren't in the next film and they weren't at the Battle of Yavin, either there's going to be a really cheesy, oh, we're going to go off on a secret mission somewhere where we won't be around for, say, the next six years, or they were just not going to make it out alive. And it occurred to me quite quickly that that was probably going to be the case. Yeah. But uh, even so, when they started dropping, and uh, who was it who goes first? It was, was it the... Um, was it the pilot? No, the pilot goes after the pseudo-Jedi. Oh, okay. So it, it, was it pseudo-Jedi who went first? It might have been. Walking over to the switch saying, I am one with the Force, or whatever we were saying. You know what? It was um, it was the droid. Oh, of course, of course. Yeah. I felt sorry for him. That's a character I actually cared for. Yeah, and I think it was interesting that they made that choice to kill off the droid first, because that was a sort of a, a way of easing us into it. You, you make this droid an interesting character, but still a droid... And then you kill him and give him an emotional moment, and that's when you go, okay, they're not getting out of this. Who's next? And then I think, yeah, they did do pseudo-Jedi and his friend, then the pilot, and then and the others. That's right. That's right. And just on the droid, of course, voiced by Alan Tudyk from uh, from uh, the Firefly series yes. and Serenity film and, and many other things, of course. Um, it, it, it was fantastic to have a droid who, who could just have crack one-liners, you know, and not be so prissy. That's, I enjoyed that very much. Yeah, look, did I enjoy the one-liners? Absolutely. The cinema laughed when I was there. Uh, again, being really picky, it did kind of cross my mind that he was just a convenient one-liner-making machine that maybe wasn't very droid-like, but, but I guess the Star Wars universe has established that droids have these human-like personalities and everything, so I, I bought it. It just... It just seemed a little bit like that's that's the one-line character. and Well, indeed, and the original C-3PO, Lucas envisaged, envisaged, I think, as a used car salesman type, a lot different to what we ended up getting with Anthony Daniels. So yeah, true. maybe there's even been a precedent for it in the past. I don't know. That might come out on the commentary. You know, yeah. We decided to do it like George originally wanted. I don't know. Yeah, but whilst we're talking about those, when um, the two main characters finally did embrace and then get destroyed in the Death Star blast. As I say, I was in a very large, nearly full cinema, mm. and there was absolute stunned silence. You could feel the audience just wowing that and taking that in and really getting kicked in the guts by it. 
Yeah. So for an audience like that, you know, in, in a movie where I think most people knew what was coming, to still be just in there going, wow, that was a really powerful moment for me. Yeah, we, we had the same. I mean, I generally find in gold class the people are very well behaved because they're in there because they want to be away from the, the riffraff, so to speak. Um, and they generally are, are quite good at most scenes in a movie, but I, I did still sense that as well in my in my session, just just complete silence, eerie, eerie silence, actually, for a film. Yeah, eerie is a really good word, although it's funny you mentioned audience behaviour. Right at the very start of the film, in the audience I was in, when the A Long Time Ago thing came up, there were probably 20 or 30 people who did start tentatively applauding, thinking, you know, sort of, woo, oh, no, no, no one else is doing this, okay, I'll just sit down again. <laughs> well, should we start on the plot? Yes. Okay, I guess we start with... Um... Jin Erso as a young girl, her family farm, which I thought was great because it wasn't a green screen sort of scenario. I think they're actually out in some beautiful location, rainy and yeah. green fields and all that. Actually, yeah, and let's let's make that point here. Again, comparing it to the prequels and even to some extent Force Awakens, these worlds felt like worlds. I know that George Lucas fell in love with the CGI and the creation of a world in the side of the computer, but I've got to say, whichever world it was, whether it was desert, jungle, beach, uh, farmland, it felt like a world. Yeah. And, you know, you just can't get away from that real traditional touch-it feeling. Exactly. And, in fact, seeing the film in the past few days, I've gone back and watched um, some of the special features on the uh, Force Awakens Blu-ray. And in that, a big section of it is J.J. Abrams talking about the original Star Wars films being practical and how they made Force Awakens practical. And I'm thinking, yeah. yes, all along the fans were like, that's what really made Star Wars for us. The fact that when Luke stands next to that sand crawler, those are huge tracks that are real behind him. You know, they didn't actually build yeah. the full sand crawler. When you see it in full, it, it is a little model, uh, which still looks fantastic too, by the way. Um, but you, it just feels real. The universe feels real. And, and George got away from that so much and was actually proud. Oh, I never built a single clone trooper armor set. Ha, ha, ha. Isn't that great? <laughs> no, no, that's yeah. not great at all. And in fact, in this film, I was smiling at some scenes, seeing original stormtroopers back on the screen, seeing the armor moving and clunking and, and thinking, that's real. Oh, my God, yeah. this is fantastic. It was like pornography for an original Star Wars fan. You know, just to see this stuff back on the screen. Yeah, absolutely. That was really good. Also, during these early scenes, part of the, the, the universe feel, Jin has a Stormtrooper dolly that one of the Death Troopers picks up. Did you did you note that scene? He sort of I picks, it up, that, picks yes. it up and looks at it, and I was thinking, yeah, she might, she might have that, because her dad works for the Empire. He's probably picked up a Stormtrooper doll here or there. You know, It would be quite normal, perhaps, for a kid to have uh, a doll like that. And it's just part of the world building, I think, that might have got lost in prequel-type films. Yeah, so that, that was good. And then we obviously time shift forward by, what is it, 12 years, 15 years? I want to say about 15. If she was like 5-ish at the start, 15 years would make her 20-ish when she's doing her big adventure. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that would be about right. Now, around this time, we actually get introduced to the Empire proper. Now, I'm going to say it right here, right now, Rob. Mm-hmm. I didn't like the CGI Tarkin, Ooh. and I would have preferred it be recast. Now, I've, I've had a couple of stand-up blues with a couple of friends in the last day about this. Who, no, you can't do that. It would look ridiculous to have a different person in one film followed by another film. And another. Sorry, I disagree. I thought the CGI 
it had good moments, but it had some really quite awful moments. And I thought we're all intelligent enough viewers to know that Peter Cushing's been dead for the best part of 20 years now. Mm. And we understand that he can't be in the movie, so it can be recast. And I would have liked that, uh, particularly given the fact that he was being revoiced. The voice didn't sound much like him at all. You might as well have gone the whole hog and recast him. That that was my view. Where do you sit on that? Well, uh, briefly, I I thought he looked great, and I was I was quite happy with it. Um, in time since I've seen the film, I've tried to do a bit of research, and information is very thin on the ground as to how they actually did this. I know that he is played not just by a voice actor, but by an actual actor, a uh, British yeah. actor. So I've, I've got the feeling it's a, it's a layer over the actor's face. The actor's name is Guy Henry, and he, he's not just a voiceover actor. He does proper stage acting and all that. So I think he might have been there on set. He doesn't look like Tarkin, but you can sort of see how they might have built a digital mask, perhaps, over his face, and that might be how they did it. I believe that's the case. It's it's the similar technology to what they did in uh, the social network with Army Hammer, where they had him play both Winklevoss twins by imposing his face over the actor playing the second twin. Yeah, and, and hopefully on the, the DVD and Blu-ray, there'll be a, a feature on how they did this, because I find it quite interesting in general in terms of technology. I mean, I guess, gosh, I think back to Gladiator 15, 16 years ago when they had to recreate Oliver Reed. They did okay then. This, this is a, a step or two ahead of that. You know, this is a... A character which which I thought looked pretty good. Not quite realistic. If I had to put a percentage on it, I reckon he was about 90% realistic. You could tell he wasn't quite right, but gosh, he was close. Yeah. And personally, I didn't mind. I was kind of just marvelling at how closely they got him to Peter Cushing. Although the scene where he had his back to camera and he had like a male pattern bald spot, um, <laughs> quite thinly combed with hair, that was distracting to me. I kept looking at the bald spot. No. <laughs> Okay, but no, I can I can see what you mean too, and I mean they did recast Tarkin briefly at the end of the third um, prequel. Uh, Wayne Pygram, I think, was playing him, and you didn't really see him up close, and it, it kind of almost looked like a bit of a parody. You didn't have to hear him speak or anything. I don't yeah. know how I'd feel if someone was trying to play him. He does have a fairly unique look. Um, I guess the voice even more so, and, and you're saying you weren't too thrilled with the voice either. So hmm. We might have to agree to disagree on that one. Look, it's it's a minor point, but I would have taken the other path, and but whatever. Yeah, but I mean, hey, look, there's our first piece of fan service, uh, having Tarkin back in a film. Like, wow. Yeah, that that wasn't, and, and and it would have been very hard to do it otherwise. Um, a friend of mine has suggested the probably the only other way you could do it was simply have him come in by hologram and say, "Just warning you that I'm coming to take over and fix it all before I get there," and that would sort of be it. Uh, this was probably more satisfying to have him fully involved in the plot. And thinking ahead sort of 10 or 15 years ahead where people discover these films and they watch Rogue One and then immediately put on the DVD for Star Wars, that will probably sit better. But I don't know. It just I'm just not a fan of that CGI creation anyway, so maybe I was put off. Yeah. In fact, leading up to the film, I thought that might have been how they got around the fact Cushing wasn't around, that Mendelssohn, I knew Mendelssohn was going to be in charge of the Death Star project, and I thought, oh, well, that, that will circumvent the need to have Cushing there, you know, and, yeah. and maybe we'll just hear he's off doing other things, and, and that's, oh, that's why they're doing that. But no, gosh, they, they were having full-on conversations. I couldn't believe it. No, no, look, it, it certainly helped to 
expand on the universe. So it, it was a good outcome. I just would have done it a different way. Mm. Speaking of Ben Mendelsohn, there was some ageing of him done. Going back to that farm scene, he was obviously a younger guy at the time, only had one sort of rank bar. And when we see him again with Tark and he's got two rank bars, he's a lot greyer. They um, they aged him quite well. I think that was a believable maybe 15 years of age on, on Mendo there. Yeah, no, very effective. And, and the, the, the touch of detail and stuff like the rank insignia does show that extra bit of love for the film that perhaps wasn't always consistent, even, dare I say, in the Holy Trilogy. Oh, yeah. Oh, the Holy Trilogy, they were just making it up as they went along, really, and got lucky. <laughs> and I say yeah, that as a, yeah. as a major fan. I do think yeah, they flew yeah. by the seat of their fans at times. All right. Um, around this time in the film, I guess we're also getting introduced to the Rebellion and what they're up to, and we meet all these new characters. One of the first things I want to say is the first Rebellion person I think we see is uh, Cassie and Andor played by Diego Luna, who for the first five or ten minutes I kept thinking was Pedro Pascal, from, uh, who was Oberon Martell in Game of Thrones, but then I realised it was a completely different actor. That's by the by, folks. We see him getting uh, information from an informant, and the Imperials are closing in, and what does he do? He blows away the informant. I thought, the Rebellion's not meant to be doing this, are they? <laughs> oh, gosh, this is a different kind of Rebellion to the one I know, but maybe a more realistic one. Yeah, absolutely. I, I thought that that was a very nasty but incredibly realistic moment. And I think it's fair to say that not everybody in the Rebellion can be as altruistic as Leia was, as Mon Mothma probably was, and this was quite realistic. I mean, at the end of the day, the Rebellion is some form of terrorist organisation. Yeah. So just in the same way as somebody like Nelson Mandela when he was with the uh, Millicent Wing of the ANC or um, Pete, uh, Michael Collins with the IRA, good men with good intentions resorting to violence in the name of terrorism, well, that's a historical reality. And it would be naive to think that this rebellion, particularly given the might of the empire against which they're pitched, didn't resort to that. I think this, that was just nonsense. Yeah, and I mean, even just skipping forward a bit in the film to when they're on Yarvin 4 and having a conversation saying, look, will we do this? Will we not do this? There's disagreement within the Rebellion as well, something I don't think we've really seen before. Normally they're like, well, certainly in Force Awakens, it's like, we've got to blow this thing up. Here's the plan. Shall we do it? Yes, we will. Yay, yay. And here it was like, you know, there was a real prick of a guy, you know, disagreeing with everybody. No, we're not doing this. No way. And I actually was a little bit annoyed by some of the give up attitudes of some of the rebels. I, I didn't mind the, uh, well, hang on, are we sure about this? Is this the best use of our resources? But the ones that just went, oh, they've built a Death Star. Oh, that's it, I give up. Game over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a bit weird. <laughs> but uh, maybe realistic. Maybe realistic that not everyone's on the same page and there are more cowardly types or more people who give in easier, perhaps. You know? Yeah, maybe. So my, my big takeaway from, from these early scenes with, Cassie and Andor and and then later in the film is hmm this is a, a rebellion I've never seen like this before and I think I like it yeah I think so too I guess in the same way the Imperials aren't all on the same team either um, we've got as we mentioned Ben Mendelsohn as Orson Krennic he wants kudos for you know getting the Death Star to completion and he's fighting with Tarkin about it he even goes at one point to Vader <laughs> to sort of tattletale on Tarkin and say, you know, you can tell the Emperor I've, I've done some good work here. <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah, okay, that's quite realistic, you know. I, I get that. I've seen people do that in business, actually. 
Yeah, I was going to say it's classic office politics, really, but um, with with Vader as the regional director. (laughs) (laughs) And what a regional director. Although that scene with Mendelssohn did end with him making a a one-liner. I'm trying to think of what it was. It was about not choking on something as he choked him. You know, don't choke on those words. And it it was almost like the start of a CSI Miami or an Arnold Schwarzenegger line or or something. I thought, I'm not sure Vader talks like that. Well, okay, well, let's have the Vader conversation then, because I thought one of the best things about this movie where they really landed it was the use of Darth Vader. Neither was he hidden away and sort of used as a bit of a tease, nor was he in our face and used in a way to service the fans. I thought Vader turned up exactly where the plot logically suggested that he should turn up, and that was really good. And I actually like this interpretation of Vader because we know deep down he is Anakin Skywalker. And Anakin Skywalker was a lippy person. He had a sense of humor like everybody does. He had a personality like everybody does. And to see Vader just sort of being more of himself, just in his day-to-day desk job almost, if you like, I I thought it worked really, really well. But I'm going to ask you, Rob, firstly, what did you think of Vader? And secondly, was the voice off? So much to unpack here. Briefly on the voice... His voice sounded off, and to me it sounded like James Earl Jones has gotten old more than anything and probably can't be helped. Uh, Because I have seen a few people say that, and um, I think that's that's what it is. In terms of Vader himself, I thought as we zoomed in on this lava planet, are we going to Mustafar? And I'm pretty sure the name didn't appear on screen, because I think I was looking like, are they going to say where this is? No, they're not. Are we on Mustafar? I don't know. And then, holy hell, what's Vader doing on Mustafa? Wouldn't he want to be away from this place? <laughs> and instead, he's he's having a bath in a Bacta tank, which I thought was, was quite interesting to show. Um, in a similar way to an Empire, when he's in that, I don't know whether it's a hyperbaric chamber or something where he's got his mask off. Uh, yeah. it's, it's sort of a, a callback to that, but doing it in a different way and quite believable too. I mean, if you had serious burns on your body, you'd probably like a bath in Bacta. As, as much as possible to soothe the colossal pain that all those scars would leave. Yeah, it was perfectly reasonable, I thought. Yeah, so I was, I was really intrigued by that. We almost got a glimpse of the eyes and, and so on, and I thought, oh, this is really cool. As I say, the one-liner just didn't sit well with me. I can understand what you're saying, that Anakin would have wit like that, but we've never seen it in the other films. You know, he, he's always been quite literal and quite stiff almost and but in the other films we've only seen him doing the front of shop vader where he's representing the empire the the emperor to the death star council where he's dealing with rebels where he's working with the emperor or you know he's in command of the ship where he's being that in command vader this is vader in you know in in the back of his office with somebody coming in excuse me boss we've got a moment yeah come in let's have a chat that's this is this is day job vader Ah, that's an interesting way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, this is Vader in his penthouse on Mustafar, it seems, this this uh, Sauron-like uh, tower that he's got himself built. Yeah, okay, okay, I can buy that. I wonder if the novel might expand on his thoughts and feelings in, in that part of the, the storyline, whether it goes into anything like that. That could be interesting. Sometimes the novels do. They they sort of expand on what characters are thinking or doing. Um, I might have to buy it for that, for that reason That could alone. be really good, uh, Vader overall, though, I enjoyed seeing in the film. You're quite right. In a film full of fan service, they were quite restrained and not overusing him, which I thought was fantastic. 
when they do let him go nuts at the end, um, walking through that ship, just smashing, you know, <laughs> rebel trooper after rebel trooper, I thought, yeah, oh my God, this is how we all want to see Vader behaving, and he is. And so it did give us fan service there, but not too much across the whole film, and that was great. Yeah, it was a really good... Um, a couple of my friends have said that that was their favourite scene in the movie. I totally get why. And the scene is made by the sheer absolute terror of the rebel troops. And they are absolutely terrified. And that makes the scene work. Oh, yeah. You can imagine what it would be like because they're locked in there with him. They can't get out. <laughs> He's just dropping them down, throwing them into the roof yeah. with such force. There was There was a really satisfying thud as one of those guys hit the roof. And, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. It's it's actually going to make the start of A New Hope look a bit tame now when he just comes through and just walks around and doesn't do much of that action. <laughs> yeah, I've had that point made a couple of times as well, but of, of all the things that won't gel well between um, Rogue One and Star Wars, it would Vader looks a little bit more pussy now, but, oh, well, I'm, I'm willing to live with that for what we got. Where can we go from here? There... Uh... There are so many characters in the film, and we haven't even spoken about, really, the main character, Jin Erso, played by Felicity Jones. Uh, we should probably address that now before we go on much longer. Uh, yeah, she was really good. She was incredibly well acted. She was she was a complicated character who went through that emotional character arc in terms of her motivation and, and where she went, and really, really good. I think that more and more these modern Star Wars films are going to give us the protagonists that we can be very proud of. I think so, too. Had you seen Felicity Jones in anything before? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Yeah, I, I went and looked up her IMDb profile, and I hadn't seen anything aside from some scenes from a film called Chalet Girl from about five years ago, which was kind of a comedy. Um, and I didn't really remember too much about it, except for in one scene, it, it's, it's kind of one of these sex-fast type things, but done in a very British way. And um, I remember one scene she jumped out of the the hot tub naked, covered up, of course. You 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 don't see anything uh, rude. Uh, and she runs out in front of a family who are who, who are there visiting the chalet, and of course there are young kids looking at them. That you know hilarity ensues. It's that kind of film. So that was my only touchstone for Felicity Jones going into this. I'm sure, and from the looks of things, she has done more much more serious work. But I had her as pretty much a blank slate, like most of the characters in the film pretty much aside from probably Ben Mendelsohn who I've seen in many things and maybe Forrest Whitaker who I've seen in quite a few things as well the rest of them like uh, Donnie Yen who was Chirrut Imwe you know if I'd watched a lot of martial arts type films I would know him but I don't um, Diego Luna as Cassian I have not seen in anything so a lot of them were a real open book. Oh, I guess Mads Mikkelsen I'd seen in some things as well. He was a Bond villain at one stage, and obviously Hannibal Lecter in the Hannibal TV series. But a lot of relative unknowns, and I don't know whether they're unknowns just because I haven't seen as many films as I should have, or whether they are they are maybe sort of more, I don't want to say B-list, but they're certainly not Harrison Ford types, you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking through her IMDb right now, and there's multiple things that I have seen but in all of them, she was a, not a minor character, but a middling character. Right. So, you know, she was Cordelia in Brideshead and Visited. She was a character I don't even know from the Amazing Spider-Man 2. Um, she was in an episode of Doctor Who, apparently. Well, that gives me an interesting lead-in. Do you know who else from the classic series of Doctor Who was in this film? Uh, no, go on. Richard Franklin. Right. Yeah, 
in the uh, in the listing for the film uh, lists Richard Franklin as an engineer. He wasn't one of the ones that comes out where uh, the director brings all the engineers out and says, which one of you leaked the document? It might be, you know. They, they were all about the right age to be a Franklin type. You know what? When I see it again, that's what I'm going to be looking out for, and I'm sure many of our listeners will too. Yeah, unless one of them knows, in which case send us a tweet and let us know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, no, you're quite right. That is a scene with engineer. Yeah, yeah, I'm seeing it now. I'm not picturing him, but I can see the scene in my head. And yeah. I'm sure that's where he probably is, yeah. Gosh, it's a small world. Uh, yes, big universe. <laughs> where do we go from here? I mean, I guess we could say, well, I don't know whether you could say, but I could say, I think the first third of the film is pretty slow. The middle third really picks up, and then the final third is just crazy balls-to-the-wall action. Were you happy with that, if you feel the same way? Yeah, yeah, look, I, I think that's a pretty fair comment. A lot of people said it. I, I was happy with that. That's how movies work you create a, a world you create the characters you then move them to where you need them to be and then you have the big finale i thought that's exactly how a movie does and should work and that's what happens with a self-contained movie you have a beginning a middle and an end and and this is perhaps where it does contrast with the force awakens because in the force awakens you just have the beginning middle and end of the beginning in the same way that in star wars you you know, you know star wars itself is a good movie but I find it is less engaging than Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi because it is just that opening chapter that really is only establishing the characters so they can then have an adventure in Empire and have an adventure in Jedi. Mm. This did all that in one movie, and that's a good thing. Quite right, because uh, obviously there will be no uh, sequels to this film. The the sequel is Episode 4, and of course none of the characters alive left to, uh, to act in it anyway. Speaking of characters, I mentioned earlier that I didn't buy into some of the characters, and it's partly to do in that sort of opening of the film, and maybe even the middle part, where we're sort of meeting them and they're building up the team, and it was so rushed. Um, For example, the the martial arts expert, the the Jedi wannabe, you could call him Chirrut Imwi. Yeah. We're sort of introduced to him, he bashes up some stormtroopers, and he's part of the gang. You know, it, it's a very brief introduction. And and his mate, um, Bayes Malbus, that's the guy with the big machine gun and the, uh, the, yeah. the um, strip of whatever it is, ammunition going up to his backpack, um, even less so. We, we know even less about him. You can go online and look up Wikipedia entries about him, or Wikipedia entries, I should say, uh, to learn more about the character, because obviously they've built a whole bio around him, but you don't, you just don't get it in the film. And I thought that was a bit of a shame, because I didn't feel as much for him when he died, even when Chiridimwi walked across that battlefield, believing in the Force and not getting hit by any blaster bolts. I just, oh, I couldn't feel for him, and I, I thought, I really want to, because I actually don't mind this character, but I didn't have it in me to feel for him. I did feel, though, however, for for Jin and for Cassian and other characters. I even felt for Orson Krennic when, when he uh, died as well. I, I get what you're saying there. I didn't really have that problem. I, I bought into them all and thought they were all okay, but I'm, I'm really curious, what did you think his character was? And then I want to say what I thought his character was, and you're probably right because you've read George Lucas's stuff. So what, what was your take on who he was? My take is they are people who look after temples where I don't think they worship the Kyber crystals, but they look after the Kyber crystals and they believe in the force and maybe they uh, provide 
facilities to passing Jedi and, and that sort of thing. You know, they're, they're sort of monks looking after a temple right. maybe where Jedi can, can stay. That's my take, that they're not part of the Order, but they are interested in, in protecting these rare crystals that Jedi use and... You know, I'm, I'm probably, there's probably someone out there who knows this far more than me, but that, that's sort of my take on what they are. And that's why they're on that planet where the kyber crystals were being, uh, taken. And that's why they were fighting the stormtroopers to get the kyber crystals back, you know, because they are precious and, um, sort of holy to them, perhaps. Right. I had a completely different approach. And this is somebody, speaking of somebody who likes Star Wars, but isn't perhaps, well, definitely isn't quite as, uh, saturated in the lore of Star Wars as you are. I assume that he was actually an untrained Jedi. Oh, okay. So, you know, the Jedi Order has now been destroyed by the Emperor and Vader, but presumably there are still Force-sensitive or latent Jedi people out there who now are just never discovered and taken to the Jedi Temple and trained to be Jedi. So they have some Jedi-like ability. They're, they're kind of like where Luke is in, in Star Wars or the start of Empire before he meets Yoda. Yeah. Um, so I kind of took him as being that. There are, there are these Jedi potential people i guess you'd call them and he was a, a, had he been born a hundred years ago he would have been a jedi yeah and and it's well established in the universe of star wars that there are force sensitives and and he could well be force sensitive but i think they are people who believe in the force they're like a monk-like order who believe in the force to the point where you could almost believe the force is something that everyone can tap into, even if they're not force sensitive, yeah. because it is there binding everyone and everything. And if you concentrate hard enough, you can tap into it, even without having, I mean, being force sensitive means you're sort of tapping into it without even realizing you're doing it. Whereas I think in the Star Wars universe, it's probably correct to say, if you really, really concentrate, you can tap into it too, because it is there to be tapped into. And that's perhaps what they do. Maybe they chant, maybe they repeat the same line over and over and somehow they get get into it. But he was particularly good, obviously, being blind and still being able to fight. He had the whole daredevil thing going on. Uh, so maybe he was a bit more Force-sensitive than maybe some of his colleagues would have been. You know, I don't think the whole order would have been exactly Force-sensitive because that's still a fairly rare thing. Yeah, okay. So, look, I don't know who's right there. You're probably more likely to be right than I am. But interesting that two people saw the same film and still don't quite know what the deal was with that character, even if they like the character. And I think he actually got the biggest laugh of the entire movie for one of his lines. But we still don't quite know who he was. You're right. Yeah, I knew that line was coming, um, not in the film, but in this podcast. And so I want to I want to address it here. For a character who was so serious to do the whole, oh, man, I'm blind, <laughs> you know, line. Um, like, are you kidding? I'm blind. It, it was hilariously funny. Our, our cinema cracked up, you know, even the most polite people in the world in gold class cracked up for a moment. And um, I thought that was great. But then I thought, was that actually in character? I guess I don't know his character well enough, but he did seem quite serious and pious for the rest of the time that that almost broke with the character I was establishing in my head. No, I thought I, I, I thought he had a real, I hate to say glint in the eye type of humour, because that's a bit of, maybe not quite correct, but... He, he had a, a very wry, knowing humour, and I thought that was exactly within his character. I thought it worked really well. Interesting. And look, I may go back and watch this a second time, as I will. I mean, my wife already wants to go back and see it at the cinema, not not even to wait for home home video. And I think I'll be able to see some of this stuff with a different eye, perhaps, yeah. like we all do when we re rewatch films. Yeah. Um, and I'm quite looking forward to that, because that, that could actually be the case. That was just my immediate takeaway at the, at the time. Yeah. 
briefly touch on his mate, uh, Baze Malbus. I've done some background reading. He's a freelance assassin, and he's getting around. He's sort of the protector and partner of um, Chirrut Imwi. Uh, that's why they have that close bond. Something that maybe doesn't come across as well in the film is that he doesn't believe in the Force, which is why at the end of the film when Chirrut dies and then he starts repeating um, Chirrut's mantra, he sort of comes to believe in the Force right at the very end of his life, just before he gets... Um, you know, I, I I totally got that. You did? Okay. Because that, that didn't come across strongly to me, that that he was a non-believer. I thought he may just believe, and now he's just repeating his friend's mantra. But uh, it seemed to be a much stronger scene than I was perhaps picking up on there. Yeah, no, I, I totally, totally got that. A similar character to Bayes Malbus, in fact, I wasn't confusing them, but they were quite similar because they were both big guys in armour, is Saw Guerrera who's the guy who they go to visit um, to try and find out where uh, Jin's father is. He's the guy who locks up the pilot yep. originally in his dungeon. And Saw Guerrera is a character from Star Wars The Clone Wars, the animated uh, TV series. He pops up... I, this is all research. I don't actually know this, folks, because I gave up on The Clone Wars before Series 5 or Season 5, which is where he pops up. And he's apparently in about four or five episodes of The Clone Wars as a younger man, which is why this film may have some real resonance with uh, fans of that animated series, because they'll say, oh, my God, it's an old version of Saw Gerrera. This is amazing. Oh, wow. Whereas to me, it's like, who is this guy? What's happening? I don't know. He's in armour. He's a big guy in armour like the other guy. What's happening? What's his name again? And... It didn't quite pay off for me in, in the way it will, I think, with fans of Star Wars The Clone Wars. And there we go again, more Star Wars fan service. And in this case, fan service that went totally over my head, even as a fairly big big fan. Yeah, it was a little bit for me like General Grievous in uh, Revenge of the Sith, where they say, oh, General Grievous is here. And I'm going, well, who, who who's he? What's he? Why is he an android coughing? This is stupid. And... Other people yeah. go, no, no, if you read these comics and these books, he's this, this, and this. And I go, well, I haven't. 99% of the rest of the audience hasn't. So he's just this character you've introduced with no backstory, no introduction, and he's a bloody coughing android. This is stupid. Yeah, and he's got a human beating heart yeah, as well in the middle of his yeah. robot body. And, and Guerrero wasn't as stupid as Grievous. He wasn't remotely as stupid as Grievous was. But I got that same sense of, are you going to introduce me to this character or we're just going to, oh, well, he's dead anyway. Who cares? Yeah. And I, and I think they don't really go into him too much, partly because they do kill him off so quickly. Uh, and also partly because I think there is an expectation. Again, the fans will know exactly who he is and there might be some real fans of him out there as well. Um, I, I wasn't, I had no idea. As I say, I gave up on the Clone Wars long before season five. And it's something I should go back and watch because everyone says, oh, it gets much better. Don't get stuck up on those first and second season stories keep watching keep watching i really should i think it's on netflix i should really just if only there are enough hours in the day for all of that stuff ah, indeed indeed can we just mention the first use of the death star and that effect because that, that do was you know, really cool i thought it was really cool and do you know um mendo is up there in the death star and he's like oh yeah we're gonna fire this and i'm like no 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 mendo you can't you can't because the first firing is in star wars oh my god what's gonna happen here they're gonna totally ruin continuity and then of course it was just a test it wasn't a planet killing test it was just blowing up the city and i thought oh phew okay continuity intact yeah, yeah no no it was really good and but both both the fires of the death star i thought were really cool yeah, that effect and the almost tsunami 
of um not with water but with just mm. land and bits of buildings and stuff was was amazingly well done and quite scary you think being in the path of that gosh you know and of course seeing it done earlier in the film sets you up for knowing what's going to happen to Jin and um Cassie and at the end when it happens and they just sit down on the beach and I'm like oh, yeah we're scared. yeah yeah that that really worked very very well both of them and, and as you say that moment of well that's it they're they're gone it's it's not happening the the, the explosion's coming their way and you have to wait for it and then it happens it was really powerful yeah, K- K2SO isn't going to swoop in flying an, a new spaceship or, you know, yeah. <laughs> the pi- the pilot's not going to come back to life and, and rescue them somehow. They are they are brown bread. It's, if only uh, they'd invented teleport, really powerful. teleport technology. <laughs> yeah, no Star Trek, no Star Trek, not in this, not in this one. Um, yes, so we meet all the characters. They get taken off to um, Yavin. Let's talk briefly about Yavin. Looked fantastic, I thought, uh, as sort of an expansion on what we saw in the original film. Just, <laughs> again, pornography for me, just to see, oh, they've recreated this perfectly. This is amazing. Yeah, I was actually quite surprised when they went to Yavin for... I thought, hang on, why would they be here? And then I realised that this is only literally days at the most before the events of Star Wars. So, of course, they're on Yavin 4. This isn't a, a prequel of five years or six years it's it's weeks it's days that, oh that, within that, a day or two i'd say yeah so that really the, the, seeing them on yavin really did drive home to me just how close a prequel this was that really was useful to me because and i was surprised i wasn't expecting it yeah and I, I you see that control room and i thought oh they've got the old bloke with the beard he's back <laughs> that's <laughs> you know, right more fan service that's right that's right and and somebody somebody playing Mon Mothma very effectively. Yes, who I think is the same actress who did it at the end of episode three. She looked good. Um, again, not not a dead ringer for the for the actor, but possibly an example of how they could have done Tarkin by having a, a real actor in the role. And it's not that bad that she's not the original Mon Mothma, but she's close enough. No, I, mean, I think I think we all get that the person who played the original Mon Mothma is a much older lady now. Yes. <laughs> um, she was actually in, and this is, goes back 10 years ago now, she was in an episode of As Time Goes By, and you wouldn't recognise her there. She's you know 30 years older there, and she's another 10 years older now, so that wasn't yeah. going to happen. Yeah. And any more than David Proust getting in the Darth Vader suit was going to happen. Oh, no. Yeah, well, that's not going to happen. I, I think he's burned his bridges with Lucasfilm. But that's a whole other story. So, uh, moving on, these are the scenes where we have the Rebellion not quite as cohesive as you would have previously thought that we were talking about earlier in the podcast. Yeah. Again, briefly, what what did you make of these scenes where they're all sort of standing around arguing with each other? You mentioned that, you know, some of the people giving up surprised you. But what about just the sort of dissension and... and rebellion for want of a better word in general between them uh, look it was good I, I i didn't like the defeatist attitude um i think at this point i could have done without some of that and i could have got straight to the the mission but it, it moved across reasonably quickly it's not a big deal i did like the fact that Jin, in true in true rebellious style decides to go ahead with the mission and people team up with her. This is, I guess, where we're meant to get the sense that, oh, the teams come together because, you know, Cassian, who's been a bit, 
we're not quite sure where he's at. We know he's killed men in cold blood earlier in the film and so on. Uh, he's on board, you know, the robot's on board, or the droid, I should say, is on board, and these other characters who they've pulled together come on, plus a lot of generic soldiers as well decide to to come on board as well. I thought for a little while, oh, there are only going to be about a dozen of these people, this is going to be a hell of a battle, but of course more get dropped off when um, when they actually get to the planet too. Yeah. Otherwise it would have been a very, very small war with only, it would have been more of a dirty dozen kind of thing, I think. Yeah, no, they needed a few red shirts and they had them and that was useful. Yeah. The plan itself is very fly by the seat of your pants. It's kind of, let's get there and see what we can see. Let's, uh, Let's see if we can find these plans which are somewhere in that building over there. Don't know how to get them. Don't know where they are. Don't know what they've called them in the file system. Luckily, they were named after um, Jin's childhood nickname. I kind of like the fact that the plan was like this, that it wasn't as well thought out, perhaps. Yeah, it, it worked very well. The The only thing that was a little weird to me was, were, were they literally sitting there going through a list of possible files looking for the one called Death Star? Like, I would have thought that the, the droid could have at least said, oh, it's this one. That, that to me, you know, like literally leafing through a, a catalogue going, oh, I wonder which one of these thousands of plans is the right one. That just didn't ring to me at all. Yeah, I mean, I guess they're using code names. So what, what was it? Stardust or something yeah, like that. Yeah, Stardust. In, in the end. Um, so maybe the droid, he could have certainly looked through them very quickly, but might not have picked up on, on Stardust. But that facility had a lot of... They looked like little hard drives, didn't they? <laughs> Stuck yeah. in that um, in that big pole thing. So there was a lot to go through, and it was a very, um, as I say, fly by the seat of your pants. Not sure how they were really figuring they were going to win out on that one. They got they got very very lucky. I guess that's Star Wars. Yeah, no, absolutely. And of course, all the time you've got the space battle now starting above, and for the moment there, I, I was sitting there going, why why is Akbar a different color? And it's not him. And it's not him. And, of course, it can't be him because the fleet doesn't make it out either. So, Well, some people must get out from the um, the fleet action because, obviously, Princess Leia's ship does. Uh, and some X-Wings must as well because we see a lot of the guys who attack the Death Star calling in with their squadrons at the start of this fight too, which was more fan service to mention. Yes. Yes, very much so. Yeah, gold group, red group, blue group. Um, and, and particularly and I, Red 5 being destroyed, allowing Luke to take their place. Bingo, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I guess I think back to that person at work asking me, would a, would a non-fan like this? And I guess they just see Red 5 blow up and not think twice about it. Yeah, that's but right. For the but, fan, there's something deeper. But were you waiting for Wedge Achilles to turn up? I briefly thought about Wedge, but I was also thinking about Porkins. I was about to say Porkins as well. <laughs> because I thought they'd put that in to make everyone laugh and have a bit of fun. Yeah. Um, and I almost wish they did because he would have been around for sure. But um, no, uh, but I did briefly think about Wedge as well. Um, there were some very Wedge-like manoeuvres from some of the guys, like, you know, blowing up TIE fighters and flying through the debris, you know, yeah. doing a little spin as they did say. So. There was some brilliant dogfighting in this. And takes you back to the original Star Wars where you can actually understand what's happening in the dogfight because it was cut together originally from World War II films where you can make sense of the action. And as Star Wars films went on, particularly into the early prequels, the space battles just become indecipherable. It's like, what's happening? Whereas yeah. this felt really good to watch. Yeah, it did. And I must say, though, I did pick how they're going to take out the shield generator. I, I just Because I've seen Return of the Jedi, I thought, it's and that moment where the executive 
the Executor dives into the Death Star. I thought it's going to be like that. Those those ships are perfect for piercing a shield. Somehow that's going to happen. Yeah, I could I could see that coming as well. Um, and I thought and thought it was a callback to Return of the Jedi. In fact, so much of the film, uh, so much of the film is obviously a New Hope sort of focused and based because it's obviously tying straight into it. But there were big slabs of Return of the Jedi that I was thinking about as well. Not just in that scene, but say in the scene where they go to the Imperial base to um, for Cassian to snipe at um, Jin's father. And they've got the Endor-type helmets on and the ponchos. And it's, it was very much... Obviously, it's raining, and it wasn't raining on Endor, but it just reminded me of, of those infiltration scenes from Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. And it was all sort of tying the rebellion together. And in the past, you only saw that style of rebel trooper with those particular helmets in Return of the Jedi. Now we're seeing them in an earlier film. And as this range of films now stretches out in front of us, we'll start to get a feel for different ships in different films, different costumes in different films. They won't just be like, oh, that's the film where that started. Yeah. No, we now see the the start of that helmet long before Return of the Jedi. Yeah. And I like that kind of thing. It just makes the universe feel a bit more, not just put together film by film, but actually something that existed as a whole. Yeah, and I think that love will, will shine through as they do more of these in the universe. Which brings us to, I guess, final confrontation uh, between Jin and... Um, Orson Krennic. Uh, Cassian's been knocked out and fallen down. I knew he would come back. Did you have that sense? Because he didn't have a death scene. And you think for a character like that, they'd have a death scene if they were really dead. So I was always thinking in the back of my mind that he was going to come back, and obviously he does to save to save Jin. Well, at that point, they were starting to kill the team, so I thought maybe it's going to be this incredibly cruel and quick and unrecognised death. Like, that it would actually be very realistic if it wasn't a death scene. So I, I was 50-50 on that. Okay, interesting. It's just because we didn't see him breathe his last or, yeah. or have something happen that was so catastrophic, like the pilot, for example, seeing the thermal detonator and like, oh, gosh, okay, boom. Yeah. Um, you know he's gone, even if you don't see his final breath. Just the way he sort of fell onto that platform and you think he could be alive, he could be dead. Oh, I don't know. But yeah, I, I can see what you mean, because it certainly seemed like they were going to bump everyone off, and indeed do bump everyone off, as my wife pointed out. No one got out of that. No one on that base um, at all, you know, and possibly only a few ships and a few of the uh, the snub fighters from yeah. the space battle. Yeah, and, and certainly, again, in the space battle, that moment when Vader's ship arrives, that was a big oh wow moment, where you just think, okay, look, at least some of the fleet's going to get away, and you know, the plan's working. Suddenly, Vader rucks up, starts destroying the ships, and you think, wow, this has really turned turned bad. At that point, when you saw that very white um, section, interior of the ship, uh, you'd already seen the outside of the ship. Did you start to get the sense of, this is Leia's ship? Uh, yeah, look, I, I knew that it was... Yes. I didn't think yeah. I needed to even recognise the, 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 the colouring. Like, you, you, you know it's a Corvette, you know it's Leia's ship. Like... At this point, you, you can see the movie being set up. Which leads us to the final bit of fan service, Princess Leia. And I was surprised they didn't get Carrie Fisher's daughter to play her. Oh, okay. Because leading up to um, Force Awakens, we knew Carrie Fisher's daughter, uh, Billy, Billy Lord, I think is her name. I, um, leading up to it, we knew that she was in it, and people assumed she was playing a flashback to, to Leia. And that didn't turn out to be the case. She was just like a rebel technician in the... Um, or a resistance technician, I should say, in one of the scenes. Here, I thought, 
Okay, we see her from behind. Are we going to see her from the front? If we do, it could be Billy Lord. No, it's not. But it kind of looks like her. Does it? Oh, I don't know. What did you think when we finally saw her face? Um, I was quite surprised we did see her face. I thought it was just going to be a from the back shot and, you know, the door would shut and we would know what happened. I thought it was actually okay. It clearly wasn't her, but I didn't look as obviously CGI'd as I thought Tarkin did. Fair enough. But others have said that they thought that she was worse, so there's obviously a bit of an eye of the beholder thing going on there. <laughs> Indeed. And... And there we are at the end of the film. All our heroes are mostly dead. Uh, we're led straight into episode four. I'm going to love watching these back to back, I think. That'll be a, a little project when it comes out on disc. Yeah, look, I, I think a lot of people will will watch Rogue One and then go straight into Star Wars and no doubt then be un, unable to help themselves and go straight into Empire. But that's that's fine. I think that'll be that'll be a lot of fun. And I did I did feel the moment when the credits started of no keep going i want this to keep going and that's you know if a film gets to two hours ten minutes in and it finishes with you wanting it to keep going that's the sign of a really good film that is high praise and at the start you said you couldn't put a, a score on it but i think you don't have to when you say something like that it's clear that you really really liked it yeah absolutely i, I really did like it it, it worked the guy i bought into the characters it had a good beginning middle and end the end was extremely satisfying it was powerful it had some funny lines look occasionally i did think it did suffer from the the, the modern script writing curse of we need a one-liner here and i could have done without a couple of them uh, as i say i thought the fan service was very well balanced the one i would have taken out is the two droids, R3PO and R2-D2. I thought that was a little bit forced. That didn't need to be there. Like, the plot didn't need them there. Yeah, I thought to myself when I saw that, I thought, you know, it's one thing for them to be in every saga film, and that's fine. They're going to find a way to do that. But to now shoehorn them into a, a, a non-saga film, it, it wasn't that necessary. Although, I guess we have to have the sense that they're around because Leia has to put the plans into R2. Well... Yeah, yeah, okay, maybe. I don't think we really needed that. And if we did, surely having them on the ship in the background would have made more sense than them halfway through the movie waving off Rogue One. <laughs> True. <laughs> uh, yeah, but as I say, if, if the worst that I can say is that they forced those two into it, then that's not a big deal. And they also had the really subtle ones like uh, the two bad guys from the cantina bar in Star Wars who bumped into the good guys on Jeddah. Yes, yes. Um, and, and, and I know a few in the audience picked up because there were, there were a few sort of, oh, wow, look at that, comments from within the audience in the cinema. <laughs> and yeah, but, but again, if you're just a normal, or sorry, a, a non-fan viewer, you wouldn't have noticed that. It would just be them bumping into someone. Yeah, exactly right. Well, have we said enough on the film before we get to our mailbag? Yeah, I think I've said all I have to say. I enjoyed it. It was good. It wasn't perfect, but hey... If they can keep churning these out in between the saga ones, I think a lot of fans will be very happy. And if it doesn't make quite as much as the saga ones, that's okay, because its job's not to do that. Its job is to service the existing fans, not to bring in the new fans. Exactly. Uh, for me, going back to reading the um, the Star Wars novels or the the newer ones that started coming out in the uh, the early nineties, not the original ones from the, the late seventies. The early 90s novels, um, not too long into that run, there was a series called Rogue Squadron, yes. uh, which went for about seven or eight books. 
those books more than any other books made me think they should make Star Wars movies like this. They don't need the main characters in them. We can just have adventures with this squadron. And hey, it would actually be a good TV series. And and all these thoughts I've had about being able to show Star Wars away from the saga have finally, finally, almost 20 years later, finally happened in this film. So for me, who's gone through some ups and downs of Star Wars over time, even stopped making my half Star Wars podcast, Doctor Who podcast that I used to do, I was just wrapped that something I, I longed for 20-odd years ago has finally happened, and it was great. Not a perfect movie, as we've both said, but a solid 8 out of 10 for me. So, yeah, I really like this one. Yeah, look, I'm, I feel the same as you, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the books because I was someone who, um, I'm a few years younger than you, and I never got to see these movies in the cinema. They were very much something that I, I'm pretty sure the first time I saw Star Wars was as an off-air copy at a friend's place on a wet afternoon. Mm. And, and you know, that's not a great way to be introduced to them. And I like these movies, and I eventually got VHS copies and everything, and they were good movies, but it was those books in the mid-'90s, particularly the Timothy Zahn ones, that turned me from someone who likes Star Wars into a Star Wars fan. And to see the movies expanding the universe in just the way that the books did is, mm. like you say, a really rewarding thing to be able to experience. And, you know, to live in an age now where we're going to get a Star Wars movie every year, not to mention a swathe of comic book movies, some of which are actually good, not a lot of them, but some of them, good sci-fi movies, you know, something like Arrival, which came out this year. As, as fans of this genre, we are phenomenally spoiled, and we need to remember, even if every movie isn't quite perfect, we are so much better off than we have ever been in our lifetimes. So let's just embrace this and enjoy it. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Now, we have a mailbag. Unbelievably, given this is a one-off episode, <laughs> I've been out there soliciting comments. And, uh, all right, the first one is a very brief one. It's from my mate Jen over in the US. And uh, she says, Rob, I just had surgery. Give me an honourable mention since Sophie and I aren't seeing it until Saturday. Sophie is her daughter. Ha, 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 promise it will be epic. So, hello, Jen. Hello, Sophie. I hope you enjoy the film very much, and I did give you your honourable mention. I'm sure they will. Now, the next letter we have is from friend of the show, Doc Hume, who, in fact, stepped into my shoes for the last regular episode, and he's written us an email directly from coming from the cinema. So thank you, Doc, for taking that time and that effort. He says... Just got home from seeing Rogue One 10 minutes ago and I couldn't leave until the credits had rolled and the lights went up. This is how to do Star Wars. Much as I thoroughly enjoyed The Force Awakens, I never saw it again and have never been tempted to buy the DVD or watch it on TV. It was just too much of a copy of A New Hope and not very convincing baddies. This gave me the feeling of 1977 all over again and 1980 and 1983. No silly First Order swanning around in rubbishy uniforms and exactly the same ships and stormtroopers pretending to be the Empire. We Brits and Aussies can tell proper empires from pretend ones. Oh, yes. <laughs> Good one, Doc. Yeah, I like, I like, like nice one. My one niggle was the leaping from location to location in the first half hour and all the incomprehensible names as if someone had been let loose with some Star Wars name generator software. I ended up just remembering The Girl the guy in white, the pilot with the goatee, etc. I've got to say, Doc, I'm 100% with you on that one, and I was doing the same thing. Yeah, I still don't know the names of the planets. Uh, I need to bone up on that a bit. Yeah. Uh, 
But once Thingy, the girl who was the guy's daughter, got on board and they started kicking ass, I was transfixed for the last hour. Sublime visuals, sumptuous battles, and at last a genuinely funny droid whose voice box you didn't want to rip out. I've no idea how they achieved Peter Cushing as Tarkin, but it was utterly convincing, more so than that shiny Cabbage Patch doll face for Princess Leia. And that's from Doc Hume. A lot of points I agree with there. A couple that I disagree with, but yeah, really good thoughts. Yeah, I don't think you agree with the Tarkin comment, but uh, maybe the, the the shiny Cabbage Patch doll face from Princess Leia. I, I get what he was saying. I wouldn't have used those terms, but I get what he was saying. And of course, he referred to the next movie in the story as A New Hope rather than Star Wars, and I don't approve of that. So, Oh, dear. <laughs> no, I, I don't do Lucas revisioning. It, it's either the original or it's not. That's my view. Fair enough. Uh, our next piece is actually going to be an audio, and this is going to be a bit of a treat from people who have followed me uh, since I was doing the Who Wars podcast. That was the joint Doctor Who Star Wars podcast I did for 40-odd episodes. Uh, one of the regular contributors, in fact, she's almost on every episode, is Kate, also known as Kamadu. Uh, you may know her on Twitter as, and she is now part of the Blabber the Hut podcast when we split off Doctor Who and Star Wars she said oh I really love Star Wars and so she went off and is doing Blabber the Hutt uh, she also does a, a standalone podcast called Nerd of Paradise where she talks about different nerdy things every episode which is very cool too so hello Kate and thank you for sending in this audio let me let me find the cassette tape and press play hey there Rob and company it's Kate here to give you my thoughts on Rogue One so I just thought last night for the first time and I have to say, overall, I was really amazed and thought it was fantastic. But, I mean, it took a little while to get to that viewpoint, so let me explain. The first third or so I thought was really jarring and kind of, like, clumsy, and it didn't really feel Star Wars other than, you know, the blatant Star Wars references they were throwing in. It just didn't have that feel and, you know, no opening crawl and the bizarre way they were showing the names of the planets. It just seemed really weird to me, and I just kept thinking, what is this? What am I watching? It doesn't feel like Star Wars. But then, um, towards the middle and end, it really picked up, and the action took over, and it was amazing. And, of course, it was so emotional on screen and off screen, especially if you read the book Catalyst. I mean, that really enhances the emotions, especially with Jin and her father, and Lear at the beginning, too. But yeah, towards the end, and it really, really picked up. And of course, you know, we got the Vader scenes, which were amazing. And it had a lot of good stuff going for it. And it just really helps to solidify the next film, Episode 4, A New Hope. And I think it was a great addition to the Star Wars family. But overall, I... I think I'm going to give this one 8 lightsabers out of 10. I'm just taking a few points off for the clumsy beginning and the music just, I don't know, at this point it's not really cutting it for me. You could tell it wasn't John Williams, I think. So I'm just going to take off a few points because of that. Also, strangely enough, I thought Darth Vader's voice there was something off about it. I know it was James Earl Jones, but something didn't seem right. So it's just like some of the little things like that. Um, but yeah, overall, I mean, just tremendous emotional impact and nonstop action. 
this is the Star Wars film everyone wanted for a prequel, I think. I'm glad to see so many fans are just embracing it and loving it. So this is interesting because it's our first departure from the saga. And I think it's off to a great start, the spin-off film. So I can't wait to see the next one. Han Solo, I think, right? But before that, episode 8 next year. I'm so excited to get back to the Skywalker saga. Okay, that's going to basically do it for me. So thanks for listening. Catch you all later. Thank you, Kate. And as someone who hasn't read the book Catalyst, um, it's really interesting to hear how it enhances the emotion between Jin and her father. Obviously, the book Catalyst, I believe, is more about Jin's father and working with the Empire in the days before they moved away to the family farm. And so you obviously get a better sense of the... Um, the relationship they have there. So I thought that was quite interesting to hear about. Yeah, and it's interesting that what Kate has said is something I've heard echoed from a lot of fans over the last few days, and including in this conversation. The opening crawl not being there was was, was a little bit jarring, understandable but jarring. The Vader stuff was cool. Yes, Vader's voice is ageing a bit, and she gave it an 8 out of 10. So very much resonating with you, I think, there, Rob. I think so. Spot on, Kate. Very good. Uh, I see the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree when it comes to my podcasting apprentice. <laughs> now, the next comment we have is a tweet from Gingerbread, a.k.a. at Alan Reed, R-E-A-D 80. Rogue One is a fantastic ride. The last three minutes are quite stunning. No spoilers. Absolutely. It was fantastic. And the last three minutes were utterly gripping. And on a spoilerific podcast, we can say, yes, it was fantastic when Vader came through and killed everybody. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Final one. It's a long one. It's from a uh, long-time listener to the uh, Doctor Who show, Renata Riveri. Um, she says, So, Rogue One, wow, just wow, that was epic. We know from A New Hope that everyone was going to die in the end. I knew that pretty much from the moment this movie was announced. Didn't make it any easier, though. It was still heartbreaking to watch it. One of the aspects I liked more was how Rogue One ended the good-slash-evil binary system kind of recurring in the Star Wars franchise. The Rebels are not the good guys or the bad guys. They are flawed human beings, Rebels, fighting for a cause above them all. And in the process, they do a lot of morally questionable actions. Because that's how it is. You can't expect to win a war like that being the cliché good guy all the time. And this, I think, ties back to things we were saying earlier too, Dave. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was really... Yeah, yeah, I agree. Another brilliant point to me was that they fixed what was one of the major flaws from A New Hope. Well, to me, the fatal weak point of the Death Star was purposefully done by Galen Erso. Much better. Also, if on A New Hope the destruction of Alderaan had very little emotional impact on the story, how didn't Leia have a mental collapse? In Rogue One, the Death Star has a big dramatic role. Yeah, that's really interesting. I must admit, I'm not one of these people that has a problem with how the Death Star was destroyed in Star Wars. I just took it as being that's the the plot device you need to get the resolution. But what she says about the dramatic role the Death Star had and actually seeing it being used and really appreciating what it was is absolutely true. It really was effective here. Absolutely. But the major point of the movie, to me, done with nearly perfection, was the final act, and the way they tied Rogue One's ending almost directly to the beginning of A New Hope. So brilliant. 
In the end, the only thing that bothered me on Rogue One were the cutting shots between scenes in the first arc. I thought they were done too abruptly, and maybe the second arc was a bit longer than necessary, but those are both small details. And I think this is tapping into something Doc said, and that we were saying earlier, the jumping from planet to planet, introducing all the characters, different planet names. You know, I think that's probably what Renata's talking about here. Yeah, look, I, I agree it was a bit of an issue. I also agree it's a very small detail. I think with rewatching, we will come to excuse and forgive it. Oh, I think so. Ultimately, Rogue One is definitely one of the best Star Wars movies I ever saw, which is so ironic because it's a movie with basically no Jedis, no lightsabers, only one awesome exception. Yeah, damn right. (laughs) And the Force is almost like a divine entity. It's there, they can feel it, but no one uses it. Again, with just one awesome exception. You know what's going to happen, and, uh, and the story still gets your attention. You know those characters are all going to die, but you still care about them so much. Well done, Rogue One. Very well done. And another huge email. I'm sorry. Hee hee. Have a good weekend. <laughs> Thank you, Renata. Yeah, no, thanks, Renata. That's some really good points. Uh, now, I've just got an email here that's not actually for reading out, and I won't read the whole thing, but it's from um, Richard, who has been on our Who Takes Roadshow before. And he's on the uh, Goodies podcast with you as well. He is on our Goodies podcast, yes. Thank you for mentioning that. And he makes the same comments that we do about Vader being really effective, about the Tarkin CGI being noticeable, and was that the best way? He picked up on the Red and Gold Leader cameos. But he finishes his email to me, and this is in a private conversation with some friends, by saying, these new movies really push Lucas's prequels into even further irrelevance, don't they? And I wonder if that's really the case for a lot of fans. This will be the chance to close the door on the prequels that they've never really liked and just enjoy a whole new set of prequels and enjoy their bit of the Star Wars universe. Well, we now have two Star Wars movies back-to-back that aren't crap. Uh, so this this vibe that modern Star Wars movies aren't as good as old Star Wars movies is now put to bed, I think, definitively after this film, which I'm very happy about, and I think that's only going to continue when we get Episode uh, 8 next year and, and, and onwards. I do think if they make a standalone Obi-Wan film with an older Ewan McGregor, it could give people some nice feels maybe for the prequels because they'll they'll it'll probably be an amazing film and i think this character's amazing ewan mcgregor is amazing and then they'll sort of realize in their head oh and he's also in these other three films and they might go back and watch them with a better appreciation for obi-wan in those films and maybe they'll come to like the prequels more i don't know you know i i know already some people are sort of going back and reappraising the prequels just like people go back and reappraise I don't know, the twin dilemma or something like that from Doctor Who. And there are people who genuinely, you you kind of get the sense they might be faking it a bit, but they seem to genuinely say they like them or they like twin dilemma, whatever it might be. Yeah, look, I I made a point of rewatching all the prequels about a year ago now. And I found, look, I I never minded Attack of the Clones. I still think that's the better of the three. I don't know if that was the case again. I found more to like in Revenge of the Sith than I had the last time, but I think it's false are still evident. I still stand by the fact that The Phantom Menace is not just a bad Star Wars film. It is a bad film. Structurally, acting, plot, whatever you want to say, it is actually a bad film. And I can't get past that one. We could have a whole other hour talking about that. (laughs) We could. We could. (laughs) But we are out of time. Uh, unless you have any final comments on on Rogue One or or anything relating to Star Wars, as we know it in 2016, Dave? No, I think you're right. We've had two good Star Wars films. Long may it continue. Agreed. 
And on that note, I want to play the uh, the theme music from Who Wars. If you've never heard it before, this was how we used to start the shows. I'll see you next time on the Doctor Who show, Dave. Yeah, absolutely, and have a very happy uh, life day. <laughs> oh, you've reminded me of the holiday special now. <laughs> I'm going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Bye-bye. His name is Ra. His name is Ra. He knows his Wookiees from his Daleks. Listen now. Listen now. Hear the Force challenge the TARDIS. Get your blue milk and jelly babies while we see which drives you crazy. Star Wars or Doctor Who.